Welcome back or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I am your host, Finn Melanson, and in this episode, we talk with Corinne Malcolm. Corinne is a professional trail runner for Adidas Terex, also the co-host of the Trail Society Podcast, a coach at Carmichael Training Systems, and in general, one of the more involved people in our sport. We talk about the good and the bad of growth in our sport, especially relating to brand building, race organizing, drug testing, and the overall professionalization of ultra running. We dig into a bit of coaching and running science topics like racing frequency, off-season execution, and research-related wish lists. Corinne talks about how she got involved on the media side of the sport and her thoughts on commentary, race coverage, and all the personalities in our community. Let's get started. Corinne Malcolm, welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I'm so happy to be here. It's been a long time coming. We've been punting this one down the road for a while. I know. I really appreciate your patience with me, but yeah, I'm excited as well. I just finished listening to your annual review of the Sport of Trail Running podcast with Dylan Bowman, and I think this is probably a good place to dig in. What is exciting you most about the Sport of Trail Running right now and why? I mean, I think there's a lot of different things that are super exciting. We've got a bunch of organizations trying to jockey for control of the sport with different race series. We've got, I mean, I was blown away by the women's performances this past year, just across the board, getting to witness um, Western States in person, getting to witness Courtney DeWalter win UTMB in person, getting to watch, you know, up and comers like Annie Hughes throw down at Moab 240. Like the sport is alive and well, and there are really cool, I mean, people at the kind of like the senior echelon that are crushing it. And then we've got all this young talent coming into the sport, some from road running in that scene, but honestly, just like from everywhere. So I think it's, I think the growth of our sport is good. And because of that growth, I'm not surprised that organizations are like within that jockeying for position because we have no governing body, right? There's no one, there's no one at the helm. So people are trying to figure out who is in charge. A lot to pick from there. I'll pick this one. Um, the brands jockeying for positions. How do you see that playing out in 2022? It looks like Hoka obviously has made some really big strides. We were talking offline about how I personally think your team Adidas is one of the coolest in the sport and they're making a lot of moves as well. Um, yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I think, I think there's this whole idea of like series control, right? And so UTMB now with Hoka as their new sponsor, UTMB partnership with Ironman group, I think that puts Hoka in the driver's seat for a lot of this, which if you're on the outside looking in, if you're the North face or if you're Adidas, like, what does that mean for you? And what do you prioritize for your athletes? And so I think it's been an interesting thing for all the heads of teams to figure that out. Like, how do we prioritize races that are still really important that might fall outside of one of those series or like the golden trail series that Solomon runs really, really exciting. I love that. It's a shorter format that's sub ultra for the most part, but I think it's like Hoka is making a stand in a lot of ways with them being the title sponsor for UTMB, therefore being the title sponsor for that whole series doesn't leave a lot of room for other competitors. Yeah. And so I think it's up to teams and even maybe cross team communication, like Adidas and the North face working together in a way to be like, okay, what races are we going to prioritize as a team? Because there will be important races that do not make that series cut yeah. for whatever reason, they don't sell to UTMB or they don't partner with UTMB. And so how do, what do we decide is important as a community? Like we get to speak with our own dollars in that sense. And so we're in this weird in between year in which the UTMB world series is fledgling. Like it's not fully operational yet. And so 
like 2023 will be the real telling, I think, of that story as people try to like, quote unquote, qualify for the world championship event. So I don't know. It's interesting, but I think it's up to the sponsors and the team managers in a lot of ways, whoever's got the biggest budget, because we don't have a governing agency outside of that to be the leader in the sport. There's no central governing body, like either nationally, like USA track and field or internationally, like the international, like athletics federation. So we're on our own in limbo, trying to decide what's important as a community. And so yes, brands will get to be the voice there, but like the, the general population, the general public also gets to put their money where they want. So I think that'll, I don't know, increase the hype at certain races, but I think that other races that are not within the series will still hold importance, which I'm, I'm hopeful for. Do you think we'll get to a point and it could be this year, or maybe it's a couple of years down the line where as these brands become so closely affiliated with certain events that their stables of athletes only race those events from here on out. And we lose these opportunities where like, if you're not a Solomon athlete, you're probably not going to go participate in the golden trail series because Hoka wants you to do X, Y, Z events. Are we going to basically have these pro athletes only racing in a very narrow lane of events? Do you think? I think you have a huge risk for that. And I think it's really important for brands to think about that. I mean, technically like Solomon still needs other brands to come to golden trail series to really yeah. say that you're gonna be the most competitive. Hoka still needs other brands to say, you know, if they really want it to be the world championship of the sport, they need the Solomon athletes. They need the Adidas Terex athletes. They need the Brooks athletes and the Saucony athletes. Like they don't, they can't operate totally on their own. So I think you're going to see crossover or you're going to have, I think you have to see crossover, but you also have to be careful with that. Cause does that, I don't know what the Solomon contracts look like. Like, is there an assumption that you are racing golden trail series? I know with yeah. the Hoka contracts, that's the case. It's like, you need to do X number of races within the series as part of your contract. And, and that's up to the individual team managers, obviously to write those contracts. And Adidas has like, we have feature events, like events that they encourage us to go to, but they don't have full control over our schedule. And I know having run for Solomon and having friends at other companies, like some brands have a lot of control over your schedule as an athlete. And some are much more supportive of like you going after what you want to go after. And then like lightly nudging you into certain races potentially. So I think the brands need each other. I don't think you can't call something the world championship race if you know, it's only Hoka athletes. So they, they need each other somehow. I'm not sure what that's going to look like down the road though. Yeah. As an outside observer looking in, and I'm not a pro athlete, it looks as if each of these brands is basically creating their own league, which is funny because it's just not that big of a sport yet. You're just going to dilute competition in my opinion, if you keep going down that road, at least in the next couple of years. Yeah. And I think what's interesting and Dylan pointed this out when we chatted last week was that the big difference right now between like the golden trail series and the Hoka slash UTMB world series is that obviously the golden trail series is mostly sub ultra and the UTMB series while, while they will include like a 20 K and a 50 K at that quote unquote world championships being like OCC and then a 20 K that's yet to be determined. I believe like it's predominantly like hundred K and hundred mile centric. And so like, maybe is that, is that important? I also think that like that puts us in this position where ultra and trail are synonymous. And I hate that. Like, I hate that people feel pressure to do hundred mile races. I hate yeah. that people feel like that's the natural progression. Yeah. And it's like, no, 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 you can, you can be a sub ultra specialist, like trail and ultra are not synonymous, but we just don't give it, at least in the U S we don't give that. We don't give those racers as much like clout as they deserve. I think when we look at like 
um, Danny Moreno or Rachel Drake or Ra- Grayson Murphy. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, like Steon on the Solomon team, he'd be a great example of this internationally. People who just crush in that like sub 50K distance, like they deserve, I think, as much like praise as someone winning UTMB, but we prioritize going longer. And so the series kind of slants that way as well. You mentioned uh, Danny Marino. I just had her on the show. We haven't published the episode yet, but she mentioned. She's so cool. She's so cool. Um, she mentioned this team that I was not aware of. It's called Team Matrix, and they're based over in Europe. And it's a bunch of like top tier athletes. Apparently, they dominated the Golden Trail Series last year, and they're united by a, a particular element in a shoe. So, like, they can all wear different shoes, but as long as they have like a, a Gore Tex type shoe, Matrix, it's some fabric or something in the shoe, they can run for the team. And so I just found that interesting because it's a way to unite athletes across brands and preferences of gear. Like you may want to race with somebody, but you prefer ultra and they want to wear an Adidas shoe or Hoke or whatever. So I just started looking into them that the site is heavily French. I don't speak French or read French, but I thought that was interesting. And she's like, yeah, be on the lookout for them because they, they have an interesting model and, um, that's cool. They're tearing it up. So, and I think, I think you'll see that with like, I think it's hard when athletes become head to toe for a sponsor, right? When they, when a sponsor owns you for everything, they're your headwear sponsor, your pack sponsor, your shoe sponsor, your pole sponsor, your clothing sponsor, like your sock sponsor, whatever, like yeah. that, that really pigeonholes you versus running for the buff, like the buff team, for example, right? Like you could be dual branded or Red Bull, for example, kind of those dual brandings where it's like, oh, I'm part of the Adidas Terex team, but I also run for so-and-so. And like, I've yeah. seen that happen at events where, you know, buff for example, at UTMB has been really supportive of their buff athletes there, even though for the most part, except for, I think a few Spanish runners or like Ragna, um, Debats, yeah. um, who's from the Netherlands, but lives in Spain, I think, or maybe that's reversed. I don't know. I'm going to, someone will correct me on that. Um, like there aren't too many that are like too many athletes that are solely buff branded. So they have to like branch out beyond that, right. To Zach Miller and Amanda Basham and yeah these other folks. So there's ways to be dual branded, but a lot of companies slant towards in a real way, owning you head to toe. And that's really limiting for a lot of athletes, both financially and um, just from like a team, like camaraderie and support standpoint. Yeah. Like I think Hayden Hawks just uh, made an Instagram post and he said that he's leaving rabbit to go full head to toe Hoka. So that's just one example. Um, Yeah. It's not that surprising, right? Like rabbit and Hoka have had a partnership for a long time because for the longest time, Hoka wasn't making apparel. And so they had to allow their athletes to work with another company, yeah. um, be it Wazelle or Rabbit or s- uh, some other apparel company that's not making um, footwear. So there's an obvious non-compete there. But it- I have no doubt that he was probably grandfathered in, allowed to like run out his Rabbit contract. Like I'm yeah. sure he was on a three-year contract with Rabbit. And when he switched from Ultra back to Hoka, he that was probably part of his Hoka deal. Like I yeah. don't know any insider inside baseball here, but more than likely he had a year on his another year left on his rabbit contract. And Hoka said, we'll sign you. But when that rabbit contract's up, we get you head to toe because yeah. everyone I know running for Hoka, like they're basic, they're all head to toe. Like they want Hoka wants to put apparel on their athletes. They don't want to have to work with another company anymore. Yeah. We both agree. I think that growth is good for the sport. In spite of that, are there any areas or are there any trends in the sport right now that concern you that we should be on the lookout for? Yeah. I mean, I think there's so many different ways to go about that question. Right. Like I think that, um, I like, once again, I worry about the synonymousness of trail and ultra and like forcing athletes, not forcing, but like the hype being 
only surrounding these long races, yeah. getting to do commentary for Broken Arrow, for example, that was like very exciting. And it was a very short race, 26K. It was over in a flash. Um, and I think that we should, we should celebrate those athletes and we shouldn't force athletes into only running hundreds. For example, when I reached out to Patagonia back in the day about sponsorship, they were like, if you ran longer, maybe like we really <laughs> only want to work with hundred mile athletes. Yeah. hundred percent. Wow. So I think that's a real thing. So I think that I don't like that. I don't love that. Um, I, although I think youth athletes in the sport are super exciting and I think that they're fun to celebrate. I have a lot of hesitations about really young athletes doing really long races, just from like a longevity standpoint, I worry about where they're going to be in, in their thirties when they're, you know, 19, 20 right now. And they're training a lot and they're racing a lot. And it just, to me, feels like a recipe for burnout and overtraining and a litany of other issues. Um, and so I worry there's some, there's definitely some athletes out there that I worry about. And I just am hopeful that they've got good guidance because once again, I think the sport trends like more is better. Um, racing longer is better. Racing more is better. And that's not the case. I think the last thing that I'm really frustrated with right now is the courts program that's associated with UTMB and UTMB series races. It's a French organization. Okay. They kind of, um, they, what should I say? They, they talk about themselves as if they're anti-doping. They present okay. themselves as, as if they're anti-doping. Okay. But they are not WADA or USADA or anything like that. And both from a drug testing standpoint and from a what they think is bad standpoint, like they're just all over the place. Like they, for example, they are trying to ban therapeutic use exemption stuff. So say you say you have an autoimmune disease and you're on like high dose um non-steroidal anti-inflammatories forever because you have a raging autoimmune disease, some sort of arthritic disease, but you can run and train and race fine. You're healthy. Otherwise, according to them, like, Oh, sorry, you take that. That's probably not good for you. Therefore you shouldn't be running. Therefore you can't be in the sport. Same with inhalers. Like they're anti, like they don't like inhalers. So it's one of those things where it's like they masquerade as anti-doping, but they're really very much trying to, they, they consider therapeutic use exemption medications, um, to be quote unquote, I'm using quotes here, yeah, but their own words, legal doping. Like it's this very like altruistic, like purity, just BS Mm. that I think is really misplaced. And really, I think that UTMB using them, I think they're just super ill-informed and they just like take them at their word that they're like, Oh, we're making the sport cleaner. And really they're like, pushing out athletes with chronic medical conditions. And I think that if they're actually going to enforce this stuff this year at the UTMB world series and at UTMB, like athletes need to wake up and be ready to like, look at this because there's the, it's the wild West. Like the rules aren't clear. Um, they don't want you to take like ibuprofen or NSAIDs within 24 hours of competition, a bunch of random stuff is banned. Like it's just, it's not great. And they also from experience being tested at these races, like there's no control, there's no protection for the athlete put in place. Like there is with WADA. So the mm. world anti-doping agency or USADA, the U S anti-doping agency in which like there's an A sample and a B sample, and there's a chain of custody and all this stuff. Like that doesn't exist within the courts program that they're trying to implement at these races. And I think athletes should be aware and cognizant and upset about it. Mm. And I don't know how much control or say we will have in it. Um, but it's something that got me super fired up um, with the UTMB announcements this past year because I just think it's total BS. And 
um we have to like i don't know there are gonna be growing pains in the sport and that is one of them yeah and but it's people's careers on the line as well and i just think it's really unfortunate that like the athletes are gonna have to be their own advocates and try to protect themselves from things like that are they only influencing policy at the utmb world series or is this across other events as well because this is the first time i've heard about courts oh yeah so they got a bunch we got a bunch of hype in the some u.s media about them this uh i feel like it was the what 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 month is it it's january um this fall maybe post utmb they're like oh we're banning nsaids next year and people are like oh my god they're banning ibuprofen what um but really it's like that's not the part that's that to me that's not the part that's exciting it's like all the other stuff that they're trying to do it is an independent organization but they partner predominantly with with european races so they've been a partner of the ultra trail world tour so what was the utmb world series up until this year they also partner with the Golden Trail Series, very French, very in with Solomon. Um, I've known about them via Solomon for a long time. Um, and they went from like being health slanted, like, oh, we're doing like some blood monitoring just to like collect data and 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 be concerned about the athlete's health and well-being. And they've kind of shifted from that to this like pretend anti-doping to being kind of like a weirdly strict beyond was like beyond WADA overreach thing that's happening. But they've been a, they've been a part of the gold trail or the Golden Trail series by Solomon. They've been a part of the Ultra Trail World Tour in the past. Um, it's been a pain in the butt for U.S. athletes because they basically just like send you an email and say, "Hey, you need to give us a CBC, which is not anti-doping, like a normal blood panel, and have it submitted by this date." So you've got to like try to take a form that doesn't exist to your doctor and be like, "Hi, I need all this done and sent to this random agency." Um, it's just it's it's a lot of hoops to jump through. But their stuff that they're trying to implement now is, I think, a big medical overreach. Um, so we're trying to figure that out as a community. What does that mean for athletes, particularly at the like elite professional level? Because I don't know, like, do you get to race UTMB if you're on an inhaler? Maybe yeah. not. Um, and their whole stance is like, well, if you have to use an inhaler and running's the issue there, then you shouldn't be running, which is like not fair, right? To people with medical, like with chronic medical conditions who can yeah. still be <laughs> athletes anyway like this medication is legal you know you go through the proper channels to be administered this like they i don't know they this is like a whole can of worms but i'm very very upset about it so i think that what athletes should do though is that they if they are interested in courts like there's plenty of information out on the web about them there's been uh media briefings coming out via the utmb organization about about courts being implemented so i think athletes should read it should educate themselves we did a trail society episode that address some of the court stuff that'd be a good one for people to listen to um but that's kind of like educate yourself because you don't want to be surprised come race day when you're trying to you know go for your day at utmb or ccc or something so i've worked in politics for a number of years and that part of me is fascinated by what the opposition would look like and and how you build a campaign maybe it's athletes banding together but what does the opposition look like to these policies that are currently in place like how do you run an awareness campaign how do you effectively work to change the policy like as soon as possible because it sounds like it's going to it'll be in effect at the 2022 utmb series i'm yep, guessing and they technically had it and they so this is like the funniest part they actually had it in effect this year and they're like oh and we found that several athletes had ibuprofen in their system but we're not going to disqualify them or ban them because they didn't really know <laughs> if we were testing for this or not and it's like okay what are the rules like what are the rules what are we allowed to do what are we not allowed to do like you can't just keep changing the rules right? Like that's not very confidence inspiring. If someone tests positive, you're not going to do anything about it. Like, 
Um, but I think athletes basically like, I think it's going to be writing letters. I think it's going to be, I mean, there are, there is stuff in the works right now to try to, um, try to what, to try to create some agency, particularly within the U S um, with antidoping measures. And I think if we can lead by example in that sense, it's not going to be effective for, you know, 2022 UTMB, but mm. I think if we can show that like, no, there are, there are specific things in place that need to be done. Um, that's important. Jason Coop's been working with the Pilates kind of, they, they were here in the U S for three weeks, kind of meeting with race directors, the Pilates being the race directors for UTMB. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're being informed by people. And I think that they're, I think they're open to hearing it. Um, and hearing it from a broad range of athletes, right. U S athletes need to speak up, but international athletes need to speak up as well. Um, and, and be, I think there, people are afraid to speak up because they don't want to sound like they're anti anti-doping, right. They don't want to be like against something that seems like it could be a good thing for the sport. Um, and then I think people don't want to be blacklisted by UTMB. And so it's hard to be vocal to a big organization that controls the sport in a lot of ways. So I think it's going to take some act. It's going to take some activation from athletes. It's going to take athletes and team managers working together to kind of vocalize what's right and what's not right. And people being aware of what their rights are, right? Like understanding how USADA or WADA works, like what is normal drug testing look like? And then when they drug test you at UTMB, be like, okay, so where's my A sample? Where's my B sample? Like, where's my chaperone? I'm supposed to have a chaperone. Oh, and I can also have one person going to testing with me who's not my official chaperone from the organization, right? So like you could bring your coach or your significant other or a parent um, or a teammate into, dr- into drug testing with you um, just because like they needed people, like you have a witness then basically. So I think it's, you know, know your rights, know what is normally expected of drug testing so that when, when you get drug tested at UTMB or another UTMB World Series event, like you can look for the red flags and identify them and be like, okay, this is not normal. This is not how this is supposed to run. And this is my career potentially on the line. You mentioned that there's a lot of brands out there that expect athletes to just go long once they get into our sport and that you'd like to actually see that trend back towards subultra distances, at least as it pertains to people entering the sport. One thing I'm curious about among the elites in our sport, there is it seems like a lot of them are on a pretty strenuous schedule. Like they are racing five, six, seven times a year. I mean, Francois Dane, for example, won hard rock and UTMB within a six week span. Courtney tried to do that same, which is insane. And one thing I've always been curious about is as our sport matures, do you think that that's going to get less common because in order to be competitive, you're going to need to space out those a events uh, a lot longer, like in the marathoning world where, someone's doing a spring marathon, a fall marathon, and they use that time in between to recover and train. Like are athletes going to be able to get away with these really short recovery performances like they are now? I think you can't, I think it's really important to not look at these athletes and think that's the norm. I'd say, look at these athletes and think that's the exception to the rule, right? Like that's yeah. not necessarily sustainable. I mean, people do like the grand slam, not, I mean, p- people do the grand slam, right? They do. What is it? Western States, uh, Vermont, Leadville, Wasatch, like that's insane. Um, so people, and and people do the Western States UTMB double, not infrequently, mostly not successfully. Um, but I think that look at the people who do that well as the exception, not the rule. And then also being cognizant of what the toll is on your body. Personally, I think creating a season, not just going race to race is important. Um, which might mean layering in 
different races. I think it's really hard if you have 200 mile races as your season and one doesn't go well. So you did one race this year. Like, yeah. what does that mean as far as like, particularly athletes that are sponsored, right? For, for anyone else, maybe that doesn't, isn't as important, but if you like my 2019, for example, I had Western States and I had UTMB as my like key races for the year. And my goal was to get through Western States via training and then run like race UTMB for like for a top 10. And Western States went smoothly as expected, got into UTMB training, felt really good, felt really fit, got a stomach bug, puked for 80 miles, dropped out at mile 80 at UTMB. Mm. So basically looking back on my season, I had a race, like one race. And that's like, that's hard to turn around to your sponsor and be like, I did one thing really well. And I did the other thing, not so well, like, so sorry. So I think being cognizant of what that looks like, I kind of attribute road marathoning to be akin to doing like a 50 mile trail race like as far as toll in the body goes. And so it's like, okay, like that's 250 miles a year. That's not insane. Um, but like, what do you do in the in-between? Does that mean you're doing some trail half marathons and some trail, maybe a trail 50 K in there as part of your buildup? Like, I think you can create a season one without, without every single race being an a race. That's like a, that's important. And then I don't think that, I don't know if you want to fly close to the sun for a couple of years, like maybe go for it. But if you want to be in the sport for a long time, I think that you need to be thoughtful with your race calendar and that there are going to be races that you get to do this year. And then you're going to get to do different races next year. Like the FOMO is just FOMO. Like it's okay to not say yes to everything, but I think you have to be smart about it. And I've had seasons where I've done two races and I've had seasons where I've done a lot of racing, but in the seasons where I've done a lot of racing, it's been like a hundred, maybe a hundred K or 50 mile. And then some shorter stuff, some really fun, you know, trail half to trail 50 K style stuff where they're not a races. They're a workout or they're a training event where I still get to go hard and still get to compete. But I think, I don't know, the ego gets in a way for a lot of people, like they can't do a training race, um, because they have to perform. But I think that, yeah, look at the people who are doing that as the exception, not the rule. And then figure out what's sustainable for you and figure out what, um, what you really want yeah. out of the season and out of the sport too. Like if it's to win, go do a bunch of local shit and win it all. If it's to compete on the world's biggest stage, like maybe you can only do one of those or two of those a year. Um, and you're going to fill it in with some other stuff in between. But I think it's, you really have to be cognizant of what you want out of it too. If that's performance or if that's like experience or to go to destinations to do races. Like there's different things you can get out of racing besides winning. Yeah. I like how you think about it in terms of seasons. And I know too many people, probably myself included that live in like the never ending now where we just roll the training block into the next one. And there's just no true off season. I'm sure it depends, but what do you see as like the bare minimum in terms of taking an off season? Like if you're going to think about the sport in terms of like a season and an off season, what do you like to tell your athletes? Yeah. So I like, I, I give people little breaks after their a races, you do a big hundred mile race. We can take a little break, but I think after the season season, it's important to really take a reset. And that could be, you know, that could be in the fall. That could be somewhere else in the year for you, depending on where you live and what you're racing. Um, IE like Arizona athletes, I feel like race really hard all spring. And then they kind of take the summer off because it's just too hot there to do anything. Yeah. Um, so being cognizant of what is your season. And then I like, um, I like two weeks off, which is not the perfect number, right? Like to at least take a week off of running, man. Like if you can't, if you can't, if you can't go a week without running, like you need to reevaluate your relationship with running too. Like 
Maybe you love running so much that you have to run, but if you can't give yourself a week off of running for the sake of taking it off, like maybe your relationship with running and exercise isn't, isn't super healthy. So I like, I like 10 days, two weeks of no running. I like a week of like really low activity, like get out for walks, do some yoga, but like, don't just get on the bike and bike really hard every day or ski really hard every day. Um, taking some actual time. And then I like another two to four weeks after that of really unstructured training. So that could be, um, that, that should be reincorporating running and that, but that's not like nothing super long. Um, nothing like no, no real intensity. I like to like, just be like, do what feels good for another two to four weeks. Um, just to reset. Um, because I think you want to be, it's part of it's physical, but a huge part of that is psychological as well. So yeah, take a little bit of time off running completely and then, um, work back into, you know, maybe you cap yourself at 90 minutes and you are only going to run three or four days a week for a little bit type of thing. So I don't know. I think people need to, yeah, that's, that's that two to six weeks I think is good. And then evaluating your relationship and your excitement for the sport, probably during that's (laughs) important as well. When I add all that up, that sounds like anywhere from four to eight weeks total. Like when you I'd incorporate say, all the, I'd say four to six weeks total. So two, weeks. two weeks ish of off, off. And then another, let's say another two to four weeks of yeah. like unstructured playtime. Yeah. Cause when I think of other sports like the NBA or the NFL or the MLS, I mean, they're taking granted their sports might be even more demanding from a physical standpoint, because like in football, for example, you're getting, I mean, it's just brutal, but they're taking two, three, four month off seasons. Yeah. Yeah. A huge, a huge time off. If I, if I, so I come from a ski background, right? I grew up Nordic skiing. I competed for the U S biathlon team, um, which we talked about before we started recording today. Yeah. And I think it's, um, they take like the season ends in March sometime generally. And then they take basically through April off, like it's unstructured. And then in May 1st is the new <laughs> calendar year for skiers. May 1st is when you start like layering on some volume and some like short little intensity. And so they get that four to six weeks of like off and unstructured time because they have like a true season. We don't, we could race year round and that makes it much more complicated, but that's like the accepted rest period during for skiers and for biathletes is that is that window at the end of the year. While we're on this, uh, training front and I'll link this article in the show notes in the newsletter, but, uh, can you talk a bit about the research that shows that as the distance gets longer, uh, female runners get stronger and maybe some of the implications for racing events like 200 milers that are getting more popular in our sport. Yeah. So this is two pronged. The first thing is that there was like, there was a big data set that came out, which was like, Oh, it's definitive. Women get faster as, as the races get longer, which is not. And, and they looked at that by saying that the women's one, there are two, there are two issues with that one, the the basically the world records became closer together. They became yeah. under whatever it was like 8% or something. And then beyond that too, the issue is that, so they looked at average times for those distances and, yeah. um, more men compete in longer and longer events than women do. Yeah. And so the average time will naturally get slower as more people come into the sport, right? Because technically like it'll just, you'll create generally, generally the the fastest end of the sport is already there. And it's the like 
middle back of the pack at that distance that gets added as, as more people come into the sport. So average times slow down as, as the fields get bigger. So men's yeah. fields are bigger than women's fields, i.e. average times can be a little bit funky, but, um, Nick Tiller and some other researchers, and I've gotten to cite Nick Tiller a lot this year. Um, he's a researcher out of UCLA, uh, medical center, primarily doing like respiratory lung research, um, part performance. He's just got an ultra, I think itch more than anything, but he does a lot of like medical and health research. And they put out a paper basically going system by system as to like why women might be more like set up to do ultra distance events, particularly the longer the distance gets. And they looked at things like fatigability of muscles and technically women's muscles are less, are they don't fatigue as easily. Is that less fatigable? Yes. Um, and part of that is due to muscle like spindle size. So we're talking like really micro micro things here. They looked at things like pacing and they're like, maybe it's testosterone. Maybe it's just like women being, I don't know, more cognizant of it or being more cautious. Yeah. Um, so looked at pacing. And so generally speaking, women paced themselves better, which is performance enhancing. Yeah. Um, so there are all these little factors that they looked at. Um, the big thing I think being, uh, it was called, I think neuromuscular fatigability, um, because otherwise, right. If you looked at things like VO two max or lactate threshold or, um, what word am I trying to think of here? Basically like max speed for a certain, for a prescribed distance, um, men stack up just like, just from like a, they've got more muscle mass. Um, they've got more lung capacity, all these things equate to, they've got more hemoglobin, so they can transport oxygen better. All these things stack up to men kind of having a, a more stacked hand. Yeah. However, beyond the marathon distance, things like VO2 max and lactic threshold don't matter as much. And so that's where there's kind of this evening between men and women is that we're running at distances that are so long that there are less barriers in women's way, essentially. And there are certain aspects of our physiology that might make us more prone to naturally excelling at that, including like having a slightly natural, like a naturally higher ability to metabolize fat. Well, for example, and that's, that's due to estrogen. Um, so there's like little things like that. There are obviously factors that maybe aren't as good. Like women report more instances of GI upset and they don't really understand why that happens in ultras. And obviously we know ultras are eating competitions, so that could be an issue. Um, but it might be because the recommendations for calorie intake is like unanimous, like men, women, everyone, this is how many calories you should, you should take an hour. And maybe that doesn't actually equate to physiology. Um, that probably just speaks to like individual variability is really important, but essentially I think the biggest thing here is that the factors that give men an upper hand in so many sports that are strength-based, that are power-based, mm that are VO2 max based, um, that are lactate threshold based, those things diminish as races get longer. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I was listening to one of the trail society episodes. And I think you hypothesized that having more testosterone can be a disadvantage in longer distances because, uh, it can hinder like long-term decision-making. Like you think you're faster yeah, than you are and like, like pacing like and stuff like that. Yeah, there's a speculation in this paper that maybe testosterone does not help decision making. And they're really theorizing from other from other research done okay. in other sports, not necessarily ultra specific sports. Um, but it this, sounds right though. The fact that testosterone 
make inhibits male decision making sometimes. And therefore it generally comes down to like pacing, right? Like, yeah. and I think we see that psychologically as well, right? Like men apply for jobs they're underqualified for. Um, men will start races because they just think that they can do the distance, um, versus, you know, women are like, I'm confident that I can do this thing. Therefore I'm going to enter the race. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not qualified for this job. I'm not going to apply for it. So I think there's like some societal psychological implications there too, but, um, there's, it's theorized that testosterone could be a decision could impact decision-making in male athletes that would, uh, I don't know. I've been passed so many times by dudes in the er- like the early miles of ultras, and I'll be like, "I'll be seeing you at mile 42. Don't you worry." Um, you can kind of tell like who's going out ahead of you that you're like, mm, "I'm going to see you later." <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know if that's societal, psychological, a combination. If that's really if we're going to blame testosterone for all men's poor decision making. I'm actually reading a book about this right now. Hold on. I know that this is an audio format podcast, but on my desk, I have a book called Testosterone. And I think the, I think the second or like the subtitle, I don't want to mess this up. It's important. <laughs> Testosterone, an unauthorized biography. And it's kind of looking at like performance and sport, but it's also looking at um, decision-making. What do we, what do we praise testosterone for and what do we fault it for? And like, what are the actual implications there? So it's the next book on my nightstand, um, that I'll be diving into. So testosterone, is it friend or foe? We don't know. Well, on this same topic of brashness, uh, I don't have any data to back this up, but as an observer of the sport, again, it doesn't seem like elite runners are any more likely to finish an ultra than middle of the pack or back of the pack. Like we see these big entrance lists for Western States elites, half of them don't even make it to the start line, maybe another half DNF before the race even starts, or they significantly underperform. I've always wondered, and maybe you can help answer this. Shouldn't elite runners like know themselves better, like going into a race, like training wise and racing wise, like in every other sport, it seems like they're disciplined and they at least get the job done to some extent, but in our sport, there's still so much unpredictability. And I think this is like put on display really at UTMB, like Western States. It's like, you say yes, because Western States and you fought your way in, or you got in, or you were in last year and you were top 10. So you're in this year. Right. So there's an, there's a, like an obligation to be on that start, that start line in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and, and people get injured in training. So there's like some natural attrition there. Generally, pe- generally speaking, I think it's very rare for elites to go into Western States underprepared. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes the gun goes off and they throw their race plan out the window and that you know, has some trickle down effects into who finishes and who drops out. And because they have more to their season, they'll drop out more likely than someone who's waited for, you know, five, six, seven years to get into Western States. They're going to finish Western States because this Mm. is their one opportunity to do the race for elites and pros. They've raced their way in. They've gotten a sponsor spot. They, you know, they're privileged like elites and pros are privileged in the sport. And so they can drop out of Western States because they can fight their way back in next year by running Bandera or black canyons or Tarawera or whatever. So I think, I think that's why you see it at Western States. I think there's some truth to the matter for later season races, particularly big ticket races like UTMB, where once again, because of their historical performances, because of their names, because of their ability with sponsors, the lottery isn't as they're not in the lottery, right? They get to circumvent that. And so they can drop out of UTMB at mile 80 like me because, well, I can do UTMB again next year. Yeah. And 
I think that once again, that comes down to, could I have walked to the last 20 miles or 30 miles of, of UTMB? Sure. I could have for sure. I had yeah. so much time. Did I want to? No, I'd been puking for like well over 60 miles at that point, And I was not going to walk it in. Um, enough damage had been done, but I wasn't in the position where I wasn't going to be allowed back next year. Like I had entry. And I think that later season races, unlike Western States where people do come to the line, unlike Western States where people I think don't show up underprepared. I think people start UTMB because it's there and they can, mm. and they, maybe they think it's their, their, uh, a race of the year, but you know, they, they race Lavaredo or Western States or something else hard early in the season. And so in that, in that way, they're not prioritizing UTMB, um, myself included. I've been, I've been in that boat. Um, and so I think that we see a lot of attrition in the elite field one, because they can get back in next year. They're not penalized by the lottery and two, um, because I think that later season races makes athletes sometimes pretend it's their priority when really it's not. So they start because they feel obligated to start and, um, they're not ready. They're not in it mentally. They're they've had a nagging injury for six weeks, but they're going to try to start anyway. And then you get to Cormier and it's so easy to drop out at Cormier. Like, why would you keep going? So I think that, I think that there's like, that's, there's multiple reasons why elites drop out of those big races. But I yeah. think that those are the race specific ones. Like what, what happens at Western States versus what happens at UTMB. And then, I don't know, you drop out of other races because it's your profession. And if you hurt yourself, you might not get to race again that year. And that has downstream implications with sponsors. So I think that I guess the best way to summarize that is that elites are privileged for sure. Maybe that's, maybe that should be, maybe that's uh, redundant because we're calling them elites. Um, and their privileges, they get to drop out with little penalty. Last question on the training front. I'm curious where you'd like to see more scientific research as it applies to ultra running. Like what are some of the largest unanswered questions that, uh, if the data was there, if the, if the research was there, it would help you as a coach and an athlete more. I think that a lot of the science that needs to be done still is really basic physiology research, predominantly looking at like training modalities. So a lot of really good research that we extrapolate from and bring into coaching philosophy comes from triathlon and cycling and swimming and Nordic skiing, because there's a big population that does it. There's some pretty controlled groups like post-collegiate training groups or collegiate training groups that are pretty good samples because they're a homogenous group of individuals who do the same things every day. Basically they eat similarly, all this kind of stuff. So we've got a bunch of good data on them. So we can look at how training affects performance. We haven't really done like a basic training modality study in ultra running, like looking mm. at like volume and intensity and periodization and all this kind of stuff. We infer what works in other sports to our sport. And I think that that works to an extent. I mean, we're doing an okay job at it, but I do think it'd be curious to run some of these studies on that, that have already been done in, on, in cyclists and in triathletes in, in Nordic skiers, just mm. on the ultra population to, to see. And I think those sports though, probably have more homogenous training styles. And the thing I love about ultra running is that there's like a hundred ways to get it done. And so the way I train is different than the way. Jim Walmsley trains is the different right. than the way Keely Henninger trains is different than the way that Hillary Allen trains or Dylan Bowman or whomever, right? Like everyone trains a little differently based on our background, based on, um, our physiology. 
which yes, is present in triathlon and cycling and Nordic skiing to some extent. But if I look at big training groups for those sports, like their training's pretty similar. Like they, they do, it's not like someone's doing something super crazy and they're eliciting different results from it. Mm. So I think it's basic physiology more than anything. And then, um, I mean, doing research in ultra running is just super hard. Like we're a weird group, we're a weird population. There's not a lot of money in it. Um, but I do think, you know, that's, that's the big stuff. And then maybe some better understanding of, um, nutrition on the run specifically looking, cause like they've done it obviously in triathlon, but or skiing or cycling, but there isn't as much stomach jostle in those sports, particularly like when you're on the bike or when you're skiing. And so I think looking at what's called, um, splanchnic hypoperfusion, which is basically the lack of blood flow going to the intestines or, um, like stomach tissue, mm. understanding kind of long-term, like both acute, like in race issues with that. And also kind of long-term outcomes of doing this to ourselves over and over again. I think having a better understanding of some of that stuff might help with fueling. I don't think everyone's looking for a magic pill, like, oh, it's going to be continuous glucose monitors or, oh, it's going to be power meters or, oh, it's going to be, mm. um, I don't know, heart rate variability. And I don't think it's any of those shiny objects. I think it's really probably more mundane, like, oh, you have to train a lot and you have to train within your capabilities and you have to do, you know, X number of things that are very boring. Um, so I think some, yeah, some basic physiology research and then maybe some like more nuanced, um, like, like gut specific health research, but I don't know, we'll keep pulling from other sports until then. And we're doing okay at that as well. The, the glucose monitor reminds me, I just, and I forget the name of the company, but I just saw an advertisement for a continuous hydration monitor. There is, that sounds crazy. I think there's something to be said for like measuring like sweat and that kind of thing and figuring out what your personal sweat rate is and all that kind of stuff. But recognizing that that's not static year round, you're going to be, you're going to be differently heat adapted depending on what you've been exposed to recently. So it's not like, Oh, I always need to drink X, Y, or Z, but a continuous hydration. It seems like one of those things you put in like a plant pot. (laughs) It lets you know, like how watered your plant is. Right. Right. Well, do you know whether it's true that as the sport gets bigger, there'll be more research dollars flowing into the sport? Like, is that true in other sports like triathlon and road running where like academia gets more money as a result too? I think, I mean, it's, it's private funding, right? It's not like we're getting NIH or K grants for this kind of stuff, but right. Like a lot of sports research is geared towards things like the triathlon industry because triathletes will spend gobs of money for like a percent improvement. Right. And there's something to be said for the road running community in that regard as well, um, with like super shoes and that kind of thing. But I think it's really going to be about private, private companies, like trying to like validate their products. And that's where that research money comes from. I've helped run those studies. I've been parts of those studies where it's like, oh, we'll buy you this equipment and you're going to do a validity study for us on X supplement or you know, this beverage or whatever it might be. I I don't think there's anything that's going to come into the sport of ultra running. That's not being like more widely researched for other sport implications. Like we're not so special. We're not like so important and so special that there's something that's like ultra specific. That's not going to have application in other sports. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. Well, switching gears, how did you get into the media side of the sport? Because I feel like in addition to being a coach and a great athlete, you've become prolific in the media area too. So what was your intro story? 
It's a total accident. Um, I joke. This is the story that I'm going to stick by. My husband. <coughs> I'm dying. Oh, my God. I was like, post-production is going to be a breeze on this one. Don't worry. Um, my husband likes to joke that I wasn't allowed to talk to him about ultra running anymore. So I had to find new people to talk to about running. Hence, podcasting and commentary and all this stuff. But that's not. Love that. That's like not true really i mean it is a little bit but i think in part it was by accident like i legitimately ended up in the utmb studio in 2018 because i was from bellingham washington on my entry and randy gaylord one of the usual utmb commentators Hmm. he lives on orcas island in washington state and he was like bellingham washington who is this and i was fourth at tds that year and so i got a he got my number from, or maybe Chrissy Mole texted me and she's like, Randy's asking for your number. Can I give it to him? And I was like, yeah, of course. So I got a text from him. I was like, Hey, come into the studio tomorrow. We'd love to interview you about TDS. Like, I love that you're from Bellingham. And I was like, okay. And then I just didn't leave the studio. Like I did. I helped do the commentary for OCC and they interviewed me and I was like, Hey, can I come back later? Would that be okay? And they let me kind of come back into the studio over and over again, um, which I did again in 2019. It's probably why I got sick. So I was like, I can do everything. I'm going to call parts of the races and I'm going to run UTMB. Like, this is perfect. I can do it all. Um, and then in 2020, everything paused. Going into Western States for 2021, Billy Yang was on the board and was like, hey, we're going to do live broadcast for Western States. And I knew I wanted one guy and one gal. And you were my logical choice. And I think I got really lucky that Randy Gaylord asked for my number in 2018. And like I ended up doing commentary for UTMB. So it's been a really, like, I don't know, that's kind of a weird way to get into broadcast stuff um, and podcasting and all that kind of thing. But it also seems like a weirdly natural progression. And if Mm. I could have my way, I would make NBC and Chad Shamala, who is the Nordic and biathlon commentator for the Olympics. I'd be like, Hey, do you guys want one more person in the studio? Like I could, I could do it. Like I'd come in. So, um, if I can ever go mainstream, that would be really cool. But for now, UTMB in Western States and broken arrow and those kind of things will be the big, the big ticket items. And I think, you know, thanks to Jamil Curry, hopefully we have more live broadcasts at more races and we get to do more of it. And now running podcast for the training group that I'm part of with CTS and running trail society with Keely and Hillary. Like it's really cool to get to do a little bit of everything. And I feel like I'm finally also asking for what I want as opposed to being like, Oh, like maybe you'll consider me for this thing. And it's like, no, 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 they don't care. Like you just have to ask sometimes. Yeah. I think that's an, it's important to, it's been a, a mixed bag of being like, Dylan help me and me being like oh I can also just like self-advocate because I'm an adult human (laughs) what have been some of the learnings along the way like learnings from media in particular yeah media and being a being a media person in the sport you're not gonna make everyone happy people are super upset with how I pronounce certain names and I'm like I'm sorry I'm like from the midwest but was raised by east coast parents like I I'm not gonna pronounce this really obscure Finnish name very well, but I'm trying. French names are the worst. I cannot pronounce French names at all, despite having a French name myself. Um, 
but I think that, you know, you're not going to make everyone happy, but recognizing that you're doing your best is important. And then for me, it's been really important to make sure that we've been featuring the women as much as we can, because, you know, it hasn't been the case at UTMB where they've allocated equal numbers of cameras to the women's race as the men's race and kind of being the voice for that and the face for that and being like, okay, like we're working on getting the camera on back to our second and third place female, like give us a second, the gap, you know, is causing an issue. So I think it's, you know, being the face for trying to find equality between, um, showing the men's race and the women's race has been important and also a lot of pressure, but I think that, you know, people hearing their concerns like vocalized has been really is good is like a satisfying thing for most people. Um, that generally speaking, most people in our sport are nice and are understanding. Um, but yeah, people can get really like hell bent on certain things and you're like, I'm sorry, like I'm trying. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been good. I think the live commentary comes super naturally to me in part, cause I've been a narrator my entire life. Like I talk a lot. Um, the, what I was like most nervous for last year was actually doing the, like before Western States interviews with Dylan. Cause I wasn't, a, I hadn't, I wasn't podcasting <laughs> then. So being thoughtful about crafting questions that were leading and also not, you know, like too direct, but were, you know, like would elicit their response from the interviewee that you were hoping for, um, like actually planning some of that stuff out, just realizing the value in that and also getting to a spot where I was comfortable doing that. Because when you're, when you're just teeing up questions back and forth with another person, and maybe you haven't sat down and been like, what questions are you going to ask? Sometimes you have to make up a question on the fly and like being more comfortable doing that kind of stuff. Um, like doing the finish line interviews at Western States feels like monumental. Mm-hmm. So getting to a, a spot where I'm more comfortable doing that versus like just a stream of consciousness about the race um, has been a huge learning curve that I think I'm like finally um, becoming more comfortable at in a large part because of like the podcast that I'm currently putting together right now. Yeah. Well, you've since had a chance to interview, it seems like a lot of athletes. And one question that I've been thinking about a lot lately, well, first one thought, the thought is it seems most athletes in our sport, the vast majority are very diplomatic. They're very polite. And I'm wondering if you think there's a place in our sport for athletes that are more vocal about their abilities and their competition and you know, how far we can go in that area, because for further context, like I come from the world of like football, baseball, basketball, where, um, the chatter is a little bit more gritty and like in our sport, again, like I said, it seems like it trends more diplomatic. And so I'm curious what, what your thoughts are there as somebody who's again, talked with a lot of athletes, you cover the sport as well as anybody. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think like in our, in our off, our off air chatter, this is coming from like, you interviewed my teammate, um, Sabrina Stanley recently, who mm, yeah. I think has been known, um, to be a very vocal advocate for her own abilities, which I think is important. Um, I think there's a societal breakdown there, right? Like we expect women to be very like diplomatic and polite and right. not bossy. Um, and you're like, I'm not bossy. I'm just like, I'm, I'm telling you what I think. Um, there's, there's that. Right. And I think that that from a societal standpoint can be really off-putting both to men and women, right? Like it's, it's a societal thing, not necessarily like the person's doing anything wrong. Um, it's why, you know, are we ever going to have a female president who knows because people don't like women who are opinionated, um, which is like very, very, I don't know, 1950s. Um, 
So I think that there's totally room for it. There's room for characters in our sport, yeah. right? And yeah. there are people who are goofy and there are people who are, you know, witty and there may be people who are weird and people who are cocky. And I think that's great, right? Like, I think that those words can all have positive and negative connotations, um, but they're characters there. And I think that there are room for characters in our sport. Um, we don't have to be this like homogenous blob of individuals, but I think that um, people like Camille Heron and Sabrina Stanley and Caitlin Gerben mm. and Hillary Allen mm. um, are four women who I think have been really good self-advocates for their abilities, right? Like, they're like, my goal is to win. Like, my goal is to win. I think I can do it. Like, I think I can race with anyone. I think I can get this course record. I think I can um, get this world record, whatever it might be. And I think that when Jim Walmsley does that, we we don't, I don't know, we don't slap them on the wrist for it. When, when women do that though, we say, Oh, like that's really off-putting. And it's Mm. like, why is that off-putting? Like, I think both men and women need to ask themselves that, like, is it because it's a woman saying it? Is it because it's how they said it? Like, what is the, the basis for this gut feeling that you get when, when particularly when women do that? And I think that we need, we need that in our sport. We need, I don't want to say it's drama or conflict, but I think there's nothing wrong with women, I don't know, at like saying what they want. And I think that's been, I don't know, it's easier to be like, I, I don't know, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to get the most out of myself and I'm going to do my best. And part of that's like, yeah, might be their psychological traits because they, that's, they're not putting pressure on themselves. And maybe they're just internally, you know, very, very competitive, which might, maybe that's passive aggressive then. Yeah. But I think that it's, it's, I like it. I like that they're their own hype machine, that they're like, I can do this. I don't know. I think more people should be their own hype machine. Maybe I do too. I mean, those are, you mentioned them, Hillary, Camille, Sabrina, Caitlin, four of my favorite athletes in the sport. And I'm always looking for their quotes in race previews, post-race interviews for a reason. And yeah, I I think that, uh, I think that a worthy like Mm sport-wide conversation is how do we encourage more characters in the sport. Like I was searching for the language, but I think that's it. I think that people will find their voice in the sport and find their, um, I don't know if it's their platform or their, their cause or whatever it might be, but I think it, you know, like, like Claire Gallagher has a very specific aura about her. It's a little bit quirky, Mm. um, but she's got this platform and she's, you know, she's like very passionate about it. And it's like, yeah, she still wants, you know, like if you ask her about racing, I'm sure she still wants to win and she wants to get the best out of herself, but it's like, she's got her own character and we Mm -hmm. accept her for who she is and what she puts out there. And I think that some people aren't going to be comfortable saying my goal is to win, you know, like my goal is to do this or that or whatever. Um, But I think that because I'm that person, I'm like, yeah, I want to go do well, but my psychological state is like, I'm. I want to get the best out of myself, and I will be happy if I if I put together a really good race. And I might be third or tenth or whatever, but like I'm happy with my performance. And that's maybe that's because I've like I've competed in super high performance sports where you're going for Olympic berths, and it's like very. Uh, I don't know. It's very very performance dictated. Every race is analyzed super critically, and there's very specific performance metrics that you're supposed to be meeting. And so maybe because I come from that background, I'm like, okay, like I have to be more chill and I have to protect my psych a little bit more versus athletes who 
maybe they came from a team sport background or maybe um, they haven't, but like ultra running is their space of getting to be competitive and performance driven. And so that is naturally their mental space. But I think mm. that my, that's not my default. Like I am, ask anyone, <laughs> my husband would agree. I am hyper competitive. I'm the oldest of three with two little brothers. We're very, we're all very close in age. They were much bigger than me very quickly. Um, and so I've been competing with them and everyone around me since I was very small. Um, like I'm not fun to play board games with because <laughs> I'm very competitive, but I feel like for me, ultra running, although I want to get, I care about my performance. I think because of my experience in the, the ski and biathlon world, mm-hmm. I, my approach to running is just different. And maybe that's where I am in my career. Maybe that's where I am just emotionally, but that like, you know, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be lying if in a pre-race interview, you know, I, I said something to the effect of like, I want to get the best out of myself, Like that would be a genuine answer. Yeah. yeah but yeah, I don't yeah. think that everyone who says that is genuine, but now I can't judge them because I just gave them all my backstory on it. In general, what is your take on how we recruit more women into the sport and specifically what does that zero to one moment look like? Yeah. I've had a lot of conversations with people about this this year and I've had different takes on it. I've had conversations that were like revolved around the, like, you know, what are certain race directors doing? Like making races like high lonesome, like 50, 50, basically like Mm -hmm. we're going to give this many spots to women and this many spots to men. Like that's what we're doing. Like we don't care how many women put in how many men put in, we're going to make it equal. And part of me has been like, oh, is that artificially like inflating the numbers? Like, is that, is that quote unquote fair? And it's like, part of me can see that, right. Can see like, well, if the lottery is 80% male and 20% female, why don't we just now do what hard rock's doing, right. Where it's, they're making sure they represent the number of women in the lottery in the percent starting, which I think is good. But the argument of like, oh, doing 50, 50 is overreach having to recognize that the needle sometimes needs to swing like really far the other direction to make actual change mm. is is valid i think i think we're seeing that in careers right like more women than ever are going to medical school mm. and i think you know watching steven my husband interview um for residency programs like versus our our female friends who are interviewing for residency programs like the needle is swinging there and it's really cool. And the needle has to, I think, swing really far one direction in order to find actual equality down the road. Mm. Um, I think that representation in the sport matters. I think that, you know, we can say, oh, getting more women in the sport is good for all women. But I think we do need to look at like who else is really underrepresented, like people of color, super underrepresented. Um trans athletes, non-binary athletes, like how do we want to incorporate representation across all those things? Because just saying, oh, if we get more women in the sport, it's good for all women, like hasn't historically been the case. Like all like getting more women in the C-suite, for example, has really been more white women in the C-suite. And while I'm a white woman and I benefit from that, like, I don't know that that like the needle, the needle can't be, it needs to be, it needs to be broad, but it also needs to be specific. And I think that we don't do justice to other humans in our sport when we get too hyper-focused. Mm. Well, what's good for women is good for all women. Because um, <clears throat> I think more often than not, that's too simplistic. So I don't know what that looks like. I think it is initiatives. I think it's 
um, scholarships and sponsorships and allocating funds. And then, then, you know, that gets into the argument of tokenism. Yeah. We're like, oh, is this person a token, the, the token, you know, athletic color on the team, et cetera. Mm. I think you have to be, be careful with tokenism as well. Um, but I do think that we need to, you know, we need to look to, to the leaders in our sport to be, to be thoughtful about this. Um, you know, I, I can only speak for the team that I'm on, but Adidas Terex has worked really hard to make our team one-to-one equal men and women. Mm. that's you know our north american team is actually like a bunch of women and like very few men but broadly like over the whole international team making sure we're one-to-one which means that we might not sign a guy in a year or we might be signing women and vice versa to keep that equal and our and the payment is equitable as well making sure that you know the tom evans of our team (coughs) is not getting more than you know his female counterpart, someone like Ruth Croft, right? Yeah. Like traditionally Tom would get paid way more than Ruth, but they've done a really good job making sure that they've, they've been conscious of that, mm. that they're not paying women less because they can. Um, and that's come to a lot of women also asking for like negotiating, like being yeah. smart negotiators. And I think yeah. that that's, you know, and helping each other out being like, Hey, <laughs> is this contract, is this, is this actually what I should be getting? Like, you know, kind of using each other, um, to understand if we're being under, you know, undersold on something. How about in terms of the appearance of races and the accessibility of races? Like, do you think at all about like changing cutoff times and stuff to make races more appealing and attractive to new audiences? So that was a super interesting point that was brought up during the, um, trail sisters, like panel during hard rock because one of the participants said, well, I think that the hard rock qualifiers, the cutoffs are too intimidating for women mm. that women won't start races that they don't feel confident. Not, not all women, but overwhelmingly women generally will start races because they think they can do it. Right. As opposed to being it completely unknown. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> so if you want more women to be able to enter that lottery and get to have finished a hard rock qualifier, like maybe those cutoff times are, are too severe. Maybe the the accessibility to that distance is too extreme. So that, but that also begs the question, you know, that's really hard for a race director to say, okay, we're going to make the cutoff 48 hours or 36 hours. Like that's more volunteer time, more, um, that's probably higher, um, insurance, um, staffing with medical personnel, like, there are issues there too that I understand um, are just really difficult from a, they're not making profits off these races anyway, for the most part. So it's not like it's super profit driven, but just understanding what the cost is to do that would be really interesting. Mm. Um, but I do think like that was something that I had not considered that women weren't signing up for these races because the cutoff times were, were intimidating, but maybe that does mean like allocating an early start, you know, do something kind of like, um, run rabbit does with the hares and the tortoises, like being like, Hey, we're going to allocate early start times. If you don't think you can finish in this amount of time, you can start early. And this is, you get four extra hours or whatever it might be like, maybe that's enough. Maybe that is something that could, could help people get through those cutoffs or have generous cutoffs early and harder cutoffs later or vice versa, right. To get people kind of down the course. So I'm not sure what's the safest thing for athletes and therefore race directors. And then what is going to allow people to not be intimidated and see accessibility in the sport. Mm. 
this relates back to the athlete brand relationship. And I think it was brought up in a recent Trail Society episode about how, at least in some cases, in some relationships, there's different expectations for male and female athletes. And especially for female athletes, it can be more than just a performance thing. There's an image to represent. And like, for example, female athletes are being sent gear that isn't necessarily about performance, but it's about looking good. There isn't really a question there, but I think it's a good thread to talk about in this conversation. We don't have hard data on it per se, but this idea that, I don't know, guys, it's solely performance-based oftentimes it feels, and I feel this in like professional sports across the board versus in women, it's like, oh, you, you have to be pretty too. And I think that that's not entirely true. But I've watched older athletes get cut and maybe it's because of their age or maybe it's because there's a a prettier, younger, blonder athlete coming up the ranks. And so it's Mm. kind of, you know, twofer. So like I'm Nikki Kimball is who brought me into the sport. Nikki Kimball, for those of you who don't know, is kind of Ann Trayson era trail runner, um, 10 top 10 finishes at Western States, has one run rabbit, has one UTMB, I'm pretty sure. Um, Phenomenal athlete. Um, and I think that she felt really pushed out from sponsorship in the sport, although she was an older athlete, um, was because there were younger, prettier, um, blonder women coming up into the sport. And so I think that there's something to be said there, be it, be it perceived or actual, um, that being said, I think that when it comes down to sponsorship dollars, I think across the board, athletes are expected to be more than results. Now they're expected to be community and amb- like computer community ambassadors and um, advocates and mm. um, have a social media presence. That's not entirely true. Obviously, people do get signed based on performance alone and um, <clears throat> and uh, might have no social media presence. But I think that we are more forgiving of men in that position than we are of women. Yeah, that women can't get away with not having the other boxes checked versus a male athlete who's performing super well, um, which I think is, is interesting. And that's just the way of the future, right? It's like, you have to be an influencer a little bit yeah. as part of your contract. Like we get social media bonuses oftentimes um, type of thing, or, or at least engagement bonuses with the material that we produce. And so I think there's pressure to do that, but I think there's even more pressure on the women, the female side of the sport for that on trail society, we talked a lot about like, Oh, shrink and pink it. And there's no, like, I like pink and purple. Purple's my favorite color. Mm. Um, I'm not opposed to wearing pink or purple, um, or running skirts or whatever. But I think that it's up to brands to make sure that they that athletes have options and historically in sports, that's been an issue. It's been a real limiter. Like, Oh, this, this is the uniform and this is what you have to wear versus like, this is the uniform. It's broader. Like you can wear these shorts or those shorts or a tight thing or a loose thing or whatever it might be. That's the uniform type of thing. So I think, I I don't think you can pigeonhole athletes into a certain image. Um, I have probably callously and meanly said things about people like, well, you know, like maybe if they paid them, they'd put more clothes on. Like, I don't know. Like it's, that's obviously very mean, but like I know on social media, right? Like if you're in a sports bra and bikini bottoms, like you get more likes on that photo than, yeah. you know, when you, when you yeah. don't, and that's, that's society and that's personal followings and that's whatever makes you happy and comfortable. Um, it's not going to be for everyone. And so I think that there's just more pressure though, put on women to 
check yeah. the bo- check more boxes to be an influencer, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And this is just a comment again, but it's interesting to me that when I look at men's fashion, like rabbit made an entire line of those checkered shirts from Western States that the Cowboys wore and like Francois bucket hat took off. I feel like I haven't seen something similar for like Courtney's style, like the long shorts, like maybe Solomon makes I'm, something. I'm but all I- for the shorts. Um, I think those are special shorts. I don't think anyone can get them, but I, you're right. I think that there isn't like, Oh, an icon look on the women's side that gets, you know, picked up. But I think that Courtney allows, gives permission for athletes to be like, I might wear this or that. Like I'm, I'm the, the voice on the Adidas team. That's like, excuse me, this is the inseam I would like. And it is longer than the shorts you make, like make me these spandex shorts, but give me a 5.75 inch inseam, like none of this two to three inch inseam BS. Um, and I will continue to advocate for longer inseams, but, um, I'm not quite Courtney DeWalter, um, in that sense. I'm like, I would like a modest inseam, but I think that Courtney gives other athletes permission to wear whatever they're comfortable in. Mm. Right. Like I watched, um, long shorts and she's like, yeah, like, I don't know. I don't have to be aerodynamic. Like I'm not, I'm going to wear what I feel comfortable in for doing this long run. And I'm, I, I resonate with that big time. I'm like, I don't like how, like, I can't race in tank tops because my lats chafe (laughs) and, um, like I like a, I like a, you know, a five or six inch inseam because I have thighs and it's like, try running in the rain for 24 hours. Like, do you want to have skin on your legs? Um, people are like, I don't know why I chafed. And I'm like, I know why you chafed. (laughs) Like that is skin on skin kid. Um, so I think that once again, like seeing that stuff represented in sport allows you to choose what makes you happy. Right. And like, I think that messaging is really important. So although companies are not making basketball shorts because the market is probably small for basketball short runner runners, but I do think promoting comfort and that it's okay to not wear booty shorts. If you don't want to wear booty shorts, all like praise be the girls who love booty shorts. But like, I think it's important that women and men feel comfortable running in what they're running be it two inch inseams or 18 inch inseams. Um, and I think that, and I know guys who are like, these shorts are too long and versus women on teams who are like, these shorts are too short. So I think it goes both ways, but I do think that the bigger thing that Courtney does with her style and her, her talking about it, particularly like having heard her talk about it in long shorts Mm. is that like, she's comfortable. And that's like what she prioritizes when she's running. And I think that hopefully that resonates with, with women, um, and young girls being like, okay, I can run in what makes me comfortable. Maybe that's a baggy t-shirt. Maybe that's long shorts. Maybe that's, you know, maybe that's running in basically nothing. Like I sound like a grandma saying that like kids these days and their little clothing. But I think that it's, um, that's what it does is that I think it gives people permission to wear what makes them happy and what makes them comfortable. And that's maybe it's not going to be sensationalized or it's not going to be the next fashion, but I do think, um, it's taken into the community and digested by the community in a different way. Let's go to the lightning round. The first question, what is a recent book movie podcast episode that you've consumed that has, uh, left a big impression on you that you think the audience should check out? Ooh, um, what have I consumed 
Um, okay, it's not running related at all. Um, okay. I just finished um, this book called Deep Creek, and it's by Pamela Houston, and it's she's she's a writer. Um, she owns a place in Creed, Colorado. Uh, the Deep Creek Ranch, and it's about ranch life and uh, the San Juan Mountains. And I want to move, like, it just makes me want to uh, burn everything down and buy a ranch in the middle of nowhere somewhere and have a very simple life of like shoveling, shoveling a path to the horse pasture and that kind of stuff. So I thought it was Pamela's writing is really great. Um, and I really enjoyed Deep Creek. And it was given to me by a good friend who said, you know, books come into people's lives at specific points in time for, you know, specific reasons. And I hope that like this book found you in like the perfect time. And, um, it was, it was really great to get to like, have this book just like deeply resonate with me. What does 2022 look like for you from uh, a competitive standpoint? So some of it's a little bit unknown, um, for those who are unaware, I didn't race at all in 2021 because I, this time last year, stress fractured my pelvis and it's been a very slow recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, but my plan is to open the season at Madeira at the end of April, um, which I'm really excited about. It'll actually be, I'll go backcountry skiing in the Republic of Georgia for two weeks. That <laughs> is so cool. Hopefully, and not get abducted and then um, go right from there to Madeira um, at the end of April. And then I think I'm going to race domestically as well. I put in for the way too cool lottery. Um, I'm sure I'll do something fun, probably post Western States. Cause I will be busy working broken arrow in Western States. So hopefully something domestic in July, um, I'm going to be working media, I think for UTMB, not racing. Um, so hopefully a fall hundred of some sort, I really want to do run rabbit. I'm not sure if that's in the cards or not. Mm. Um, ultra trail Cape town is going to do an inaugural hundred mile race this next year. And that's very intriguing. Um, so I'll probably go to ultra trail Cape town for either the hundred K or the hundred mile. So I feel like my season's a little bit scattered still, but, um, the bucket list is long and, uh, I'm excited to go to Madeira an Island. I've never been to, to open the season with my first race since February of 2020, um, in April this year. I'm based here in Salt Lake city as a fellow backcountry skier. I'm jealous of the trip to Georgia. That sounds amazing. It's going to be a raucous honeymoon. I'm super excited. <laughs> Last question. It's a little bit philosophical. If you were given a billboard to put a message on for all to see, what would it say and why? If I had a billboard for everyone to see and it could say whatever I wanted, I think it would say eat real dessert. Like none of this like healthy dessert bs okay like don't demonize dessert desserts dessert for a reason so i think it would just say eat real dessert and they have like a chocolate chip cookie or something on it or maybe be spelt out on a chocolate chip cookie in chocolate chips um and it'd just be like i don't know i think why punish yourself life can be punishment enough just eat eat real dessert eat real ice cream unless you're vegan then you can eat whatever coconut ice cream you want but eat, eat real dessert, like put butter in it once again, unless you're vegan, <laughs> but, but like, I don't know, I'm not an applesauce replacing oil and brownies kind of person. I'm a straight up, like, give me chocolate and real, just white, white sugar and butter and I'll be okay. Amen. I would sponsor that billboard. Well, this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for dropping all this knowledge. 
before we go, if people want to follow you, if they want to get in touch, if they want to learn about any particular initiatives you're working on, where do you want to send them? This is great. Okay. So I am, I think the only Corinne Malcolm, so I'm pretty easy to find. So I'm at Corinne Malcolm on everything, Twitter, Instagram. I don't really use Facebook. I think I exist there, but don't, don't do Facebook. Um, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. That's where I'm most active. Um, obviously download trail society, like now subscribe, like us on everything. Um, because we're working really hard alongside free trail with Dylan Bowman, our fearless leader to bring a bunch of really cool media, you know, hashtag trail culture or whatever to, to everyone. So, um, like follow subscribe. And then I was just, I'm now published, which is really cool. Um, I am a co-author on Jason Coop's, um, second edition of training essentials for ultra running. Um, a recent guest of yours, Abby Hall did all the artwork for us. Um, it's amazing. It was a lot of work. It's way too long. It's 502 pages. Um, it's an ebook it's on audible as an audiobook, which is really weird and wild. Um, it's in paperback and hardcover, which looks like a textbook because it's that big. Um, so people should probably buy it unless you're one of my athletes and then hold off because I have something for you. Um, so stop buying it, um, but keep buying it. So that is kind of the latest, greatest thing. And then I also run the train right podcast for CTS and that mm. comes out every other, whatever day of the week we decide to publish it. Um, and then my co-host for that is this guy, Adam Pulford, who's amazing. Um, if you're into cycling, you should check out his podcast as well. That's the train right podcast, um, brought to you by CTS and I think that's it. I'm too easy to find. Slide into my DMs. That's always the ask. We will link to it all in the newsletter and in the show notes. And I, I just ordered the book. It's on my coffee table now. I'm stoked to dig in. And then also for what it's worth, a ringing endorsement of Trail Society and the Free Trail Podcast, both awesome pillars of our community. Definitely. Dylan will like that. The pilars of our community. <laughs> the pilars. Yeah. Well, Corinne, thanks so much. It's great to meet you and we'll do this again sometime. Yeah, I hope so. Hey, thanks for listening. I just have the same usual requests. Please consider giving us a review in Apple, a rating in Spotify, and share us on social, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you spend the most time. I know I say it all the time, but yes, it truly does help more folks discover the show. So thank you. As always, I am your host, Finn Melanson. I am grateful for your support, and I will talk to you on the next episode. 